Women of the Bible. Some of their stories we know very little about. Some of them we know in great detail, but all of them offer insights for us today. Just ahead, we're going to encounter the stories of several of these women. And as always, we'll reserve plenty of time to answer your Bible questions. And you don't want to miss Charlie Dyer's devotional. It's called How to Get Rich Slowly. Welcome to the one-hour trip to Israel that we call The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, lifetime student of Israel, author, conference speaker. I'm John Geiger. You know, Charlie, once this program is over, some people ask, where do we turn for more content about Israel, the Bible, and sharing the gospel with Jewish people? Yeah, John, and that's why Life and Messiah has been focused recently on producing high-quality video content on their YouTube channel. Engaging videos are being released twice a week related to these important topics, and we encourage you to check out their content, which will be inspiring and uplifting. As a special for Land in the Book listeners, if you visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button, you can get a sneak peek at one of their upcoming videos and subscribe to their channel. That's lifeinmessiah.org, and then click on the Moody Radio button. All right, let's turn our attention toward current events of this week. Benjamin Netanyahu's trial, along with the controversy over judicial overhaul, continued to make the headlines in Israel. So what specifically has been happening on both fronts over the past week, and are these two stories somehow linked? You know, people are trying to see a link between the two stories, suggesting the judicial overhaul is really designed to short-circuit Netanyahu's corruption trial, but there really doesn't appear to be a link. The trial is continuing, and none of the judicial overhaul bills being debated right now directly link to the charges against Netanyahu. In fact, Netanyahu has been pushing back against coalition members who want to pass more extreme measures as part of the judicial overhaul. The one issue this week was the Knesset advancing a bill to limit justices from using, quote, reasonableness to overturn actions of the Knesset or ministers. They hope to pass the bill into law before they adjourn for the summer at the end of this month. Demonstrators and protesters responded by holding a day of resistance and disruption. Hmm. Physical threats were made against leaders on both sides of the issue, while Israeli President Herzog pleaded with all sides to change the tone of the debate and to come together to seek compromise on the issues. Now, this is crucial since both sides have become more vocal in their demands, which could lead to open conflict. Meanwhile, the case against Prime Minister Netanyahu has been taking some surprising turns over the past few weeks. A meeting between lawyers on both sides and the judges was leaked to the public. In the meeting, the judges told the prosecutors that, based on the evidence heard thus far, the bribery charges will be hard to substantiate. They recommended the two sides look for a way to negotiate a settlement. The prosecutors rejected the suggestion and were upset that the meeting was made public. Meanwhile, Netanyahu's supporters used that report to reaffirm their beliefs that these charges are unfounded and are being used by opponents to try to force Netanyahu from office. So the two stories aren't related, except for the fact that they both lay bare the deep divisions right now within Israel. Well, Iran, Russia, and China continue to work together to try to reshape the Middle East. What impact could this developing alliance have on the region? Yeah, let me start by focusing on what has been taking place. Iran officially joined the Shanghai Cooperation Organization to help cement their economic ties with China and Russia. They've also developed close strategic military ties with Russia following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. They supplied Moscow with drones and apparently will receive in return access to advanced fighter jets and anti-aircraft defense systems. 
Now, all three nations share a dislike for the United States, and they want to blunt our economic and military influence in the world. They see an opportunity to work together to harm our interests in the Middle East. Russian warplanes have been harassing U.S. drones over Syria, and Iran's efforts to restore ties with Saudi Arabia are an attempt to disrupt the expansion of the Abraham Accords, a major U.S. diplomatic initiative there. The three nations are chafing under Western-imposed economic sanctions, and they're going to use their alliance, they hope, as a way to bypass sanctions. What makes the Middle East so important is that it sits at the center of all their interests. China hopes to expand its belt and roadway system in the region. Iran wants to encircle and ultimately eliminate Israel. And Russia wants to expand its influence in the region and replace the United States as the dominant player. The one uncertain variable in all this is Turkey. Russia and Turkey had been developing closer cooperation, as had Turkey and Iran. However, Russia feels betrayed by some of Turkey's recent actions, like approving Sweden's entry into NATO. Turkey's Erdogan continues to prove that he's an unreliable ally to both the West and to Russia, though it's uncertain whether his actions will create any long-term problems. What is certain, though, is that the Middle East remains a key area where all these adversaries and allies are trying to battle for supremacy. How aware do you think the United States government is of the alliance between Iran, Russia, and China, its potential, and uh, what do you think they're doing behind the scenes? Well, we're very aware of the alliance, and uh, frankly, we don't have a lot of resources to throw at it. We tried to demonstrate a rapid uh, response uh, capability, in fact, most recently with Israel, to try and show that even though we've drawn down our forces in that area, we can rapidly bring them back. But apart from things like that, there's not a lot we can do. This is The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Middle East scholar. I'm John Geiger. We're working our way through a list of current events, topics for this past week. Story number three, the latest potential benefit coming from the Abraham Accords might be a land bridge connecting Saudi Arabia and Israel. (laughs) What exactly is envisioned and why would this be so significant? Yeah, what's being envisioned is a physical roadway uh, that would allow goods and merchandise to travel from the United Arab Emirates through Saudi Arabia and Jordan and ultimately reach the Mediterranean at Haifa. Eventually, the link would extend as well to Bahrain and Dubai. Now, that land bridge could greatly shorten the distance goods would have to travel between Asia and Europe, lowering transportation costs and shortening the time. Uh, Some hope these commercial connections could also lead to travel and tourism connections between the different countries. Uh, Its backers envisioned the roadway eventually transitioning into a permanent rail link that would connect all these countries. The ultimate goal, though, is to use these economic connections to bring Saudi Arabia into the Abraham Accords, secure peace between them and Israel, and enhance U.S. influence in the region. Now, there are a number of details yet to be worked out, including standardizing the trucks that have to be used, uh, developing a universal driver's license that could allow drivers to cross multiple borders without difficulty, but the economic benefits are substantial. Let's hope that they can overcome uh, the religious and political prejudice against the state of Israel in the process. Well, Charlie, the uh, the nervous Nellie in me says, wow, this is a, a terrorist delight, though, a highway like that. Could that not be uh, hijacked for their purposes? Oh, absolutely. That's, in fact, one of the big concerns. You know, could a terrorist uh, somehow get that license and uh, have, a, have a truck and fill it with explosives or, or add explosives to it and then drive across the border into Israel? Uh, it's those kind of fears that are making this move uh, somewhat slow while they try and iron out all the details and all the potential problems. Hmm. 
Well, green hydrogen is being touted as a potential future energy solution, though major obstacles continue to slow its development. But a new Israeli startup is working on a plan to overcome some of those hurdles. Tell us about this latest innovation from Amazing Israel. Yeah, i got to start with just a brief explanation. Hydrogen is being touted as a major long-term energy solution. You know, when hydrogen is burned, it turns into water vapor, H2O. It doesn't produce greenhouse gases. However, hydrogen takes a great deal of energy to produce, to break down uh, through electrolysis or other means, uh, water into hydrogen and oxygen. It actually takes more energy to create hydrogen than hydrogen will produce. And the energy that it takes to create it actually produces pollution from the emission of CO2 in that process. Now, one alternative is to use solar or wind power to generate hydrogen through electrolysis, but the cost is about five times more than the polluting method. And that's where this Israeli startup, and the, the name is crazy, it's QD-SOL, and that's where they come in. They're pioneering a technology to offer sustainable hydrogen production. They fit the whole process inside a solar panel generating hydrogen directly from sunlight using nanoparticles that catalyze the separation of hydrogen from oxygen and water molecules without emitting any carbon dioxide. Now, powered by the sun, the process doesn't need any other energy source. It was developed at the Technion, Israel's Institute of Technology, and the company has produced its first hydrogen from a prototype roof-type panel that they've installed. They're now developing a complete working system using interconnected panels. In May, they won a clean energy competition in Morocco for the invention. Now, could inexpensive, plentiful hydrogen uh, just simply be a matter of installing hydrogen solar panels and using the energy from the sun to separate the hydrogen from the oxygen and water? If QDSOL has its way, this new approach from Amazing Israel might be a key element to help bring about that low-cost hydrogen revolution. It's not going to solve all the problems. But any steps in that direction would be good steps, and it looks like this is one that they're taking. Well, it's not quite as cutting-edge technology, but it's still pretty cool. It's our Land and the Book podcast. Charlie, where is it, and why is this such a great idea to seize? Well, it's exciting. On our website, people can go to the Land and the Book, and or they can get our, our Moody app and listen to it. Uh, but it's really an opportunity to uh, listen to our program at someone's convenience. They can listen when it's convenient for them rather than having to listen at the set time when it's broadcast. On-demand listening is all yours for The Land and the Book. Looking forward to our conversation next on Women of the Bible right here on The Land and the Book. Nothing about you escapes God's notice. Elizabeth was shamed for her infertility. Leah was overlooked. Hagar was cast out. Yet each of these women encountered the God who was willing to enter into her broken reality. We're going to explore their stories and more coming up. Welcome back to segment two of The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger, inviting you to think creatively with me for a moment about ways to connect with your Jewish friends and neighbors. No educated or religious Jewish person would ever believe in Jesus. Is that a true statement? Levi Hazen is executive director of Life in Messiah. What say you? Well, John, this claim could not be further from the truth. There have been many, many highly educated Jewish people that have come to believe in Jesus. We have testimonies of rabbis who have come to faith. 
uh, such as the uh, chief rabbi of Bulgaria named Daniel Zion. He played a crucial role in saving hundreds of Jewish lives during the Holocaust. Or what about today, Dr. James Tour? He's a professor at Rice University, a synthetic organic chemist who has over 750 research publications. He's been granted over 130 patents and named one of the top 50 influential scientists in 2019. He's a Jewish believer in Jesus. So this lie can simply be responded to with grace and love by giving multiple examples of Jewish people who do believe. But grace and love, shouldn't those characterize any conversation we have? Absolutely. We're not going to beat someone over the head into believing in Jesus. <laughs> That's Levi Hazen with Life in Messiah. When she was in college, she spent a semester living and studying in Jerusalem. There, she explored the archaeology, history, and geography of the land of the Bible. And since then, she has developed a passion for helping people unlock the culture and context of the world of the Bible. All of this to encourage deeper engagement with and understanding of Scripture. Anna Haggard is associate content editor for Our Daily Bread Publishing. A follower of Jesus, she loves to write and edit books about sharing God's generous, deep love for all people. Anna co-authored the Called and Courageous Girls series, Mission Drift, and The Spiritual Danger of Doing Good. Anna lives in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. That's Amish country, if you've never been there. We're really glad to meet up with her today on The Land and the Book. Welcome, Anna. Thank you so much for having me, John. I'm just thrilled to be here and to talk about one of my favorite topics, um, the women of the Bible. Well, it shows as you open up that book. Anna, by the way, is also the editor of Known by God, 40 Devotions and Insights on Women of the Bible, where today's conversation is centered. And I have to say, I was arrested right up front by that statement, nothing about you escapes God's notice. Boy, it seems like there's a month of sermons in that sentence. Why does this so easily escape us, though? You know, we often have this image in our minds of we know in our, in our heads that God is good and God is all loving. But I think a lot of times subconsciously we think God is a harsh taskmaster and he, you know, he has a progress report that he's expecting us to do, but really he is seeking us out. And we see this in a lot of the stories, particularly how he interacts with women. Nothing escapes his notice. He sees every detail of our lives and he's very gracious and very invitational. Um, for example, when we come to Hagar's story, we're meeting her in Genesis 16 on the run. She has, she's an enslaved Egyptian woman. Um, she's been impregnated by one of the patriarch Abraham. And here she is, desperate, running away from her masters and her abuse. And God meets, it says in Genesis 16, that the angel of the Lord found her on the road there by a spring. God was looking for her. God was seeking her out. And it's just really incredible to see. And um, Jesus was known to make several appearances in the Old Testament. And this was the first one. And it wasn't to a Hebrew. It wasn't to a man. It was to a woman who was enslaved and low status. And so we see a God who actively seeks us out and is gracious and loving. And I guess the second piece that I love about her story is that um, he calls her by name Hagar. And then he says, where are you coming from and where are you going? Yeah. And I think that just that language of invitation and questions, and that's the line of how God enters, invites us, initiates conversation. He's not there to like just get a progress report. He, he's initiating a relationship. Right. Known by God, insights on women of the Bible. That's our focus today on the land and the book with our guest, Anna Haggard. You know, a growing number of devotionals are out there 
inviting us to focus on women of the Bible. What makes this one stand out from your perspective? Kind of going back to, uh, as we love the land of the book, and um, and I'm just really thrilled to be able to talk to you about that today. And one of the things, having been in Israel, you just know how important it is to visualize the scriptures to be able to understand them. And this book, we're trying to help uh, people do that by kind of helping them visualize the world of the women of the Bible. And so a lot of it, we give historical insights, kind of giving a daily life in the lives of women of the Bible, and also helping people to, um, through our prompts and prayer prompts, kind of engage directly with the scriptures so that they're kind of entering into the biblical text. Hmm. Well, take us to another one of your favorite women of the Bible highlighted in this book and, and encapsulate that story for us working with um, an amazing team of women who put this devotional together, theological editors and our Daily Bread authors, they teased out some things that you take a familiar story and helped us see it with fresh eyes. So one of them was looking at the Mary and Martha story. Now, as you know, it's a pretty familiar story, and we kind of see the story there. Jesus' friends, and they invite him over for dinner, he and his disciples. And the, the story goes that Martha is in the kitchen, and Mary's sitting at his feet, listening, and Martha just gets pretty angry because Mary's not helping. <laughs> and, and so all that is true, but we often miss this phrase that says that Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet. And there's something very significant about that phrase, because Paul um, uses that phrase later, I think in Acts 22, he says, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, which means he was sitting at the feet of a rabbi, which means he was a disciple of that rabbi. So by sitting at mm. Jesus' feet, we have Mary identifying as a disciple. And you know what? What's amazing about this is that Jesus defends that action. And so he called her a disciple as well in his eyes um, because he said what she chose was better. So just really teasing out those amazing pieces that how much God elevated women in Scripture, especially during that cultural time period, it's very exciting to see. Yeah. How difficult was your role as general editor in creating a sense of cohesiveness mm -hmm. in the content and overall message of this book? Yeah. Well, you know, what was interesting when I started this project, I was praying about it, and I really felt like the Lord impressed upon my heart that this book is not your project. This is not about you. And this is about you coming alongside the women who are going to share exactly what I have to give them to share. And I really found that to be true. So I kind of took a step back, and really my goal was to just empower them to give their message that he was delivering through them. And I just was really blown away. Some of the women came up to me and said, yeah, I just really felt like God placed this particular message in my heart to share. Yeah, we had a great team, and it was neat to see how God empowered our team of writers to do that. When she was in college, she spent a semester living and studying in Jerusalem. There she explored the archaeology, history, and geography of the land of the Bible. And since then, Anna Haggard has developed a passion for helping people unlock the culture and context of the world of the Bible. She's our guest today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and uh, as I look through this book, Anna, I love the inside layout. Space to jot notes, answer questions, lots of great quotes, pages splashed with color. It really is beautifully designed in a way that I think is itself kind of calming and, and encouraging. And I'm sure that's no accident. There was some great work there too. Yeah. Isn't it gorgeous? I love it. We have an in-house designer who did a fabulous job um, creating a space that you want to come to in prayer and engage scripture in a way that you don't feel stressed or chaotic, but that you can engage and fully step into that scripture. 
You know, I wonder if, as you went through this whole project, were there any surprises for you personally as you worked on the book, a particular aspect of some biblical character that maybe you never considered before? I think some of the, the studies that surprised me and that really drew me in were the stories of women that were less known in Scripture. So thinking about, we we know the story of Moses and the Hebrew people being enslaved, um, The kind of the start of the Hebrew resistance came from two fairly unknown characters in the Bible called Pua and Shipra, and uh, they were midwives. And what I just found so intriguing about them is at that time, Egypt was one of the most powerful kingdoms in the world, and yet they dared to defy him when he ordered infanticide against all the Hebrew baby boys. They decided, nope, we're not going to listen to the king because they feared God. And just incredible to see the courage that we gain when we have right priority, when we fear God first, the fear of man (laughs) is diminished. And it says they told the Pharaoh that the Hebrew women were too vigorous. And so they birthed the babies too fast. And so the Pharaoh apparently believed them. It says that because they protected the Hebrew nation, uh, God gave them a family of their own and he blessed them. And I was just, yeah, the stories of courage really just drew me in. Mm. I appreciated the attention to detail shown in the way that you help us place these biblical women in context. In other words, Mm -hmm. uh, you help us see things about their day and age that we might otherwise overlook. It's one thing to read the the text at surface level, but to understand that day and age, boy, how much of a challenge did that work present to you? Yeah. For example, for someone like Deborah, uh, we know she was a key leader, but the Bible provides so much about her highlights in her life, but we know less about that day-to-day, her everyday experiences. For example, like what did she, could she read? Did she go to school? Did she have kids? Um, what was her family day-to-day like? So there's just a lot of questions and we kind of wanted to bring that to the forefront so that people could see what the similarities and differences were with today and in that time frame. One of the things, as you know, studying the land in the book, when you're looking at scholars, when they're looking at reconstructing what a day in the life would be like for someone like Deborah, they're looking at both the text, so the the biblical texts and other texts from that time frame. They're looking at the land. So we're looking at archaeology and uh, geography. And then we're also looking at the third thing would be ethnographic studies. So looking at Middle Eastern cultures, traditional cultures before modernization. So they have a lot of background on those cultures too, and how maybe, for example, how they used pottery or looking at their practices that way. Hmm. So we kind of looked at scholars looking at those three different pieces and then kind of teased out some of these stories. Um, I guess one of my favorite things that I learned was that, um, so with the women, um, they would make their own kilns in ancient Israel. And so they were ahead of, they were tasked with bread making. And so they would create it with their own hands, these ovens. And then it was a communal thing. Bread baking was often in communal spaces where people would come together and uh, keep the fires going uh, constantly because they wanted to save on fuel and they would bake together. So a lot of, a lot of things that was interesting in Israelite community was everything was done in community um, and surrounded that idea of what was called the Beit Ab, which is the, the father's house. And that included intergenerational family and often other people in the household too. I like that. The family that bakes together, I guess, is a good one. Yes. Anna Haggard is associate content editor for our Daily Bread Publishing. She joins us today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger saying thanks for being a part of this conversation. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what kind of time frame do you suggest women use to go through this devotional? Is there an optimal way of doing this? You know, 
there's different ways to do this. And this is actually, it's really great for both individual study and small group at our office. We, a bunch of the managers are coming together and meet weekly and just kind of use this as a Bible study guide to, um, kind of explore deeper. Uh, we have a lot of prompts that help us to engage with the stories and also just with how God is at work in your own life. Yes. But it's a 40-day devotional, so um, it takes 40 days. But you know what? I'm always a person that if you need more time, sometimes it's better to take several days and savor study instead of rushing through something too. Yeah. Well, I keep coming back to the one sentence on the back cover, nothing about you escapes God's notice. Is that the one message you want readers to walk away with, or is there something more that uh, you'd point to? You know, I think that is at the heart of the book, that and that God empowers us to live according to his ways. But, you know, first we need to know that we are valued, we are special, we are invaluable in his sight, and he knows everything about us, and he has known us from before the time we were born, before the beginning of eternity, he created us. So I know as a Christian who's walked for most of my life in the, grown up in the church, I think so often we forget, at least for me, I've forgotten the simplest lessons that Jesus loves me, this I know. And mm. we so need to know that how much God cares about us because otherwise there's really no basis for that relationship. If we if we have a fear of God or if we're, we think he's an angry taskmaster, uh, we're not going to draw near to him. So just this idea that we are valued and loved, um, it's simple, but it's foundational. Yeah, for sure. Anna Haggard is general editor of Known by God, 40 Devotions and Insights on Women of the Bible. A link to that book at our website, thelandandthebook.org. We're not done yet. We've got a full program yet to come. Charlie Dyer will be here. Maybe you've emailed us a question. Maybe we're going to answer it today. Stick around for more here on The Land and the Book. Questions and answers. That's our focus on this familiar segment here on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, welcoming you back to this segment that looks at all kinds of curious questions that listeners just like you have. Charlie's got his Bible ready, right, Charlie? I do, John. And I got some questions ready, so let's dig in with this one from Mark. He says, I have long been confused by the phrases unintentional sin and sins unintentionally in Leviticus 4 and 5. Can you give examples of unintentional sin so I might better understand these passages? Yeah, and I'm going to give just a broad perspective on this. Any violation of God's commands and ordinances was considered a sin, but God did divide those into two broad groups. Uh, One kind were sins, in fact, the Bible calls them sins committed with a high hand or sins committed defiantly. Uh, Those were uh, like in Numbers chapter 15. God gives some uh, examples on what not to do on the uh, Sabbath, And then a man deliberately said, I don't care. And he went out and collected wood for a fire on the Sabbath. That was a deliberate sin. But in contrast, the kinds of sins you're asking about in Leviticus 4 and 5 are called unintentional or inadvertent sins. Those are where people violated one of God's many commands, but they didn't realize they were doing it at the time or didn't know it was wrong. Uh, We need to remember there were scores of, of specific individual commands in the Bible. They didn't have a copy of the Bible you know, at hand. In fact, it was usually one copy or, or, or less, in the, and they were kept in the temple by the priests. So it was just easy for an Israelite to accidentally do something that was wrong unintentionally. Uh, now, in terms of examples that you wanted, well, the Bible mentions accidentally touching an unclean animal. 
uh, in uh, chapter 5, or, or uh, taking an, an oath and not realizing that you're doing that uh, without thinking it through. Uh, there are two possibilities. So, you know, so touching something that's unclean, like you're in the field, you turn something over, and you find it's actually a human bone. That would be another example. I'll give you a modern example. It's driving down the road and uh, not realizing you're going over the speed limit until the policeman pulls you over. Uh, those are the kind of things that are uh, they're wrong. I mean, you're violating a, a law, but they weren't done deliberately. And uh, in those cases, God provided a way to make things right with God when something inadvertently or unintentionally violated one of his commands. Ebenezer says, I've always been fascinated with creation and have held to a 6,000-year history of the world until today. I've learned that in Spanish, the word for thousand is mil. Could it be that when Paul said a thousand years, he was just using a term for their greatest number that uh, he knew of at that time? Can you enlighten me? Yeah, and I got to answer this two ways. Yeah, first, the Spanish word for thousand is indeed mil, uh, but the writers of the Bible weren't speaking Spanish. Uh, so the New Testament, uh, in fact, in Greek, when John was talking about Jesus reigning on earth for a thousand years, uh, he uses the Greek word kilia, which literally means thousand. But second, thousand isn't the largest number that they could ever conceive. In fact, even in the book of Revelation, we're told about 144,000 witnesses from the 12 tribes of Israel. We're told about 7,000 killed in an earthquake, uh, a period of 1,260 days. And then, in fact, uh, the New Jerusalem, it says there's 12,000 stadia on a side, which means that the things are like 1,400 miles wide and deep and high. So uh, if the New Testament writers wanted to have some large number, they could. In fact, they could even do larger than that. Uh, to describe a longer period of time, they could use ion, which uh, we get the word eon from it. Paul uses that in Colossians 1 to describe the mystery of God's plans for the saints hidden for ages and generations. And that same phrase is used in Revelation. In fact, in chapters 20 and 22, John uses it there, and, and it's normally translated forever and ever. So the writers in the Bible might not have had a specific term for million or billion or trillion, probably because inflation wasn't there at that time, at least to that number. <laughs> but I don't see any examples where they use thousand or mil to just picture a number of indeterminate length. Uh, they have other ways of picturing something forever and ever. And uh, when they use the word thousand, I think they're giving a specific period of time, especially when they talk about that thousand year reign of Christ. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, working our way through questions that have come in via email. I'll give you that uh, address in a bit. First, though, once our program is over, where do you turn for more content about Israel, the Bible, and sharing the gospel with Jewish people? Well, Life and Messiah has been focused recently on producing high-quality video content on their YouTube channel. Engaging videos are being released twice a week related to these important topics, and we encourage you to check out their content, which will be inspiring and uplifting. Now, as a special for Land in the Book listeners, if you visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button there, you can get a sneak peek at one of their upcoming videos and subscribe to their channel. That's lifeinmessiah.org, and then click on the Moody Radio button. All right, back to our questions. This one from Susan, who's teaching the book of Esther. She says, I don't have a whole picture of the Jews in Persia. Uh, it doesn't sound like the Jews were hated and that they had to hide their identity. Was there really anti-Semitism that strong in the kingdom? You know, why hide the identity of certain people, the Jewish people? The king knew, for example, Mordecai was a Jew and he had an official role in the government. So he apparently was not opposed to Jews. Help me understand. Yeah, I'm sure there was prejudice and hatred against the Jewish people on the part of many. Now, there would have been several reasons for this. You know, jealousy over their success and advancement to prejudice over the fact that they were foreigners. 
to the same sort of anti-Semitism we still see today. But at the same time, the Jewish people had distinguished themselves in the Persian court. Mordecai really was probably some sort of government official since he was seated at the king's gate. And just after the time of Esther, we find Nehemiah serving as cupbearer to the Persian king. In fact, before them, Daniel had served with distinction in the court of the Persian king. Now, the reality is that I think all the extremes were true. God continued to bless the Jewish people, even in exile, and he continued to bless those who blessed Abraham's descendants. But at the same time, there were those who were jealous of the success experienced by some Jews, as well as some who just simply disliked them for being different. And Satan was still at work behind the scenes, trying to destroy the nation God had chosen to be his channel of blessing to the world. So it might seem confusing, but I see all those elements intermingling during this time in Persia, much like they are today. Mary asks, at the cross, the Lord Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Was Christ referring to the Roman soldiers involved in his trial and crucifixion, or was he referring to everyone, including us? Thanks for your help. Yeah, I take Jesus's words there in Luke 23, 34 to be referring specifically to the soldiers who were crucifying him. Now, I say that because in verse 23, Luke focuses on the soldiers. He writes, you know, there they, that is the soldiers, crucified him. And then later in verse 34, right after Jesus's words, Luke writes, and they, that is the soldiers, cast lots, dividing his garments among themselves. So within the context, it seems like the focus, including Jesus's words, is specifically on those soldiers at the crucifixion. Hmm. Todd asks, do you think the chronological story of Messiah including his eventual reign, is somehow embedded in the particular arrangement of the Psalms? Well, I'll start this way. I think there's a lot prophetically about the Messiah in the Psalms, but I don't see a prophetic arrangement of the Psalms themselves in the book being prophetic. For example, Psalm 2, it's a royal psalm that looks toward God installing his Messiah who will rule over the nations. That points ultimately to Jesus's millennial rule. But then Psalm 22, later in the book, points toward the rejection and crucifixion of the Messiah, which occurred at the time of his first coming. So historically, Psalm 22 predates Psalm 2 in terms of its time of fulfillment. Now, I do think there's a specific arrangement of the Psalms. It's in the books, and they refer to the time of collection. That is why you'll see when you read Psalms, book one, book two, book three, Mm -hmm. five books like that. And also one other tiny detail. If you look at the end of each of those books, it ends with a doxology. So 41 verse 13, or 72 verses 18 and 19, and so on. They have each of these books ending with a blessing to God. Uh, The first two of those books are primarily Psalms written by David and collected early. Wilma asks an intriguing question. Did Jesus pass by Sethopolis, or biblical Beit Shan, while traveling? Well, I I believe he did pass by uh, Sethopolis or or Beit Shan during that time. Uh, when he went uh, from Galilee to Jerusalem or or in reverse, but he did so when he went on the eastern side of the Jordan River. We know uh, sometimes Jesus went directly from Galilee to Jerusalem and back. That's when he met the woman at the well in Samaria. But at other times, he crossed the Jordan River, went down and crossed back at Jericho. And I say that because there are times when we see him connecting with events in Jericho. For example, Zacchaeus, uh, that he meets there, or blind Bartimaeus. And when he went that direction, he would usually stop then at Bethany on the slopes of the Mount of Olives and then uh, go from there to Jerusalem and back. Deb asks, my question is from Nehemiah 3.8, the last sentence in the New Living Translation, they left out a section of Jerusalem as they built the broad wall. Hey, I thought King Hezekiah built the broad wall, she says. 
Yeah, and Hezekiah did build it. And in fact, I think this is a case where the translators for the New Living Translation uh, didn't provide a good rendering of the Hebrew. Both the New American Standard and the NIV provide a more literal reading. It says they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Hmm. Now, I believe that reading better matches what likely happened. The group restoring the section of the original wall continued building up to the spot where the broad wall, which was built by Hezekiah, joined the original wall around Jerusalem. Uh, that wall and the section of Jerusalem enclosed likely wasn't restored, though, until after the time of Nehemiah. It's always a pleasure, never a chore, to answer these questions, so keep them coming. You can email yours to us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's a mouthful. Let me slow it down. The Land and the Book at moody.edu. We've got another great segment coming up, Charlie Dyer's devotional, right here on The Land and the Book. Well, if you scan the web, there are no shortage of opportunities for you to get rich and quick. I <laughs> wonder how many of them actually pan out, right? I'm John Geiger. This is The Land and the Book. Welcome to segment four, our devotional. Charlie, any thought about getting rich quick with regards to today's devotional? Uh, yes, and it's going to be just the opposite. It's going to, we're going to talk about how to get rich slowly, according to Proverbs 28. Sounds good. We'll get to that devotional after this quick testimony of an Israel traveler who would like to share this with you and me. Hi, my name is Renee Pechuk, and uh, I just can't even begin to explain the experiences here at the land. And probably the most favorite part that I had was the devotionals that we would have at each stop along the way. Uh, Charlie Dyer just has such a spiritual gift of opening the Word to us. And as we looked around at exactly the places we were at, we could actually picture it and visualize in our minds the actual events that happen that are recorded in the Bible. Word for word, everything is proven. It is awesome. Hi, my name's Larry Hughes. This is my first trip to Israel. I, the thing that impressed me the most is that uh, we've learned so much and that Charlie helps to make the Bible come alive. And uh, I don't think I'll ever read it quite the same. And um, we'll be able to read the scriptures and actually see the places that that uh, these things all occurred where Jesus walked and preached and so forth. It's been real interesting and I've really enjoyed it. Well, I'm interested, Charlie, in this notion of getting rich slowly. What do you have in mind here? Well, John, from lotto fever to the latest internet scheme involving the widow of a wealthy foreign banker in Africa who needs your help to move that fortune to America, it seems people are suckers for get-rich-quick schemes. But this isn't anything new. Back during the Great Depression, Will Rogers took a jab at such plans. He said the quickest way to double your money is to fold it in half and put it in your back pocket. But the drive to amass wealth extends back far beyond the time of Will Rogers. In fact, you can find evidence of it in both the Old and New Testaments. And to see what the Bible has to say about gaining wealth, uh, join me as we head outside Bethlehem at the time of King Solomon to explore two fields and the lives of two farmers living on their family farms. As we approach, we can spot the difference immediately. At the first farm, we spot the farmer hard at work harvesting wheat. The wheat's growing between a dozen or more olive trees. In one corner of the field is a patch of barren rock where the farmer has been piling the sheaves of wheat. Once the wheat's been gathered, he'll thresh and winnow it before storing the grain in clay pots. 
Farmer number one also has another field next to the first. This field has rows of grape vines. The vines were tended in the winter and tiny clusters of grapes have already begun to appear. The ground around and under each vine has been cleared of weeds and thorns and allows the maximum amount of moisture and sun to reach each vine. The stone walls around each field were carefully repaired and thorns and thistles hoed from the ground are piled on top, a crude form of ancient barbed wire to keep four-legged and two-legged thieves from slipping in at night to help themselves to the harvest. Just across the roadway is the field of farmer number two. It's hard to tell the stalks of wheat from the tall weeds growing in the field. The olive trees have shoots growing up from the roots, competing with the olives for the nutrients and moisture in the soil. And the grapevines along the edge of the field are barely visible among the weeds that seem to be choking out the plants. The stone wall along the road has collapsed in places, allowing easy access for any person or animal wanting to sample whatever crops do manage to grow. Farmer number two can't be found. So we asked the first farmer where his neighbor might be. Oh, he's out chasing another one of his dreams for getting rich. He's tried several over the past years, but none have seemed to work out. And at this point, we think back to the words of Solomon in the book of Proverbs. Solomon drew a contrast between someone working hard to earn a living and someone who was always looking for an easy way to strike it rich. In Proverbs 12:11, he wrote, He who works his land will have abundant food, but he who chases fantasies lacks judgment. And as we stare at the fields of these two men, we understand what Solomon meant. The author Sam Ewing said it this way, Hard work spotlights the character of people. Some turn up their sleeves, some turn up their noses, and some don't turn up at all. So is the secret to getting rich slowly just to work hard? Well, that's helpful, but the book of Proverbs says more than just hard work is involved. Proverbs 28:19 repeats the truth of chapter 12, verse 11, but then adds three additional Proverbs to help provide us with a broader context on the relationship between work and riches. So before we walk away from these fields, let's see what else Solomon has to say. In Proverbs 28:20, Solomon contrasts a faithful man with one eager to get rich. So what's the comparison? A faithful individual is one who's trustworthy. Whether it's in working for someone else or in dealing with customers wanting to buy what he's produced, the faithful individual will be richly blessed. People are willing to deal with someone they trust. But someone eager to get rich, it says, is an individual who's willing to cut corners, even to the point of dishonesty, in his dealings with others. Whatever small advantage he gains financially, he will usually be caught, or as Solomon puts it, he will not go unpunished. Having gained a reputation for dishonesty, he will find it very difficult to regain a person's trust. So what's the secret to getting rich slowly? Well, first it involves hard work. And then it requires faithfulness, not cutting corners. But Solomon isn't done, though the next verse requires some careful thought. To show partiality is not good, yet a man will do wrong for a piece of bread. People fundamentally want to be treated fairly. Someone who is willing to show partiality, possibly being dishonest or even perverting the course of justice for financial gain, is someone willing to sell their integrity for something as small and insignificant as a piece of bread. In their haste to get rich, some individuals are willing to cut backroom deals that help someone at the expense of another, selling their own integrity for financial gain. As someone wisely observed, sometimes the dues we pay to maintain integrity are pretty high, but the ultimate cost of moral compromise 
is much higher. Want to get rich slowly? Try hard work. Being trustworthy. Never compromising your personal integrity for financial gain. But Solomon isn't finished. He has one more observation on how to get rich slowly. Here's what he says in verse 22. A stingy man is eager to get rich and is unaware that poverty awaits him. The verse literally describes a man with an evil eye. The same phrase was used back in Proverbs 23, 6. This is a type of individual who appears to be generous, but who does not share for your benefit, but for his own. He may offer you a feast, but in the end, Solomon said there, you will vomit up what you have eaten. Everything comes at a price, which isn't revealed until it's too late. Back in Proverbs 28, Solomon explains the individual's motive. He's eager to get rich. A stingy individual hoards what he gathers and exacts a price for whatever he reluctantly does share. He views life as a contest, and his aim is to win at your expense. This last proverb ends with a dramatic twist. The greedy, self-serving individual believes he's getting rich by hoarding everything he can accumulate. It's the Ebenezer Scrooge mentality that views life as the ultimate game of monopoly with only winners and losers, and he's determined to win it all. And that's why the ending is so unexpected, because he's unaware that poverty awaits him. He was able to get the best of everyone else, and he never shared what he had with others. So how could he end up in poverty? The answer is that God has a way of evening out the score, unexpected financial reverses, unanticipated physical problems that drain one's financial resources, unpredictable changes in weather or other natural disasters that bring sudden loss. And the individual who spent his life living only for himself can find himself without friends, family, or financial resources when facing such a dramatic misfortune. We all feel a need for financial security, but how we try to achieve it is a key to success. God's path to riches involves working hard. But while doing so, we must guard ourselves from greed. We need to work just as hard at being trustworthy and making sure we never compromise our integrity for financial gain. And we need to remember to be generous, not stingy. Or as Solomon pictures it, having the evil eye that's always trying to profit from others rather than looking for ways to help others. Solomon understood this lesson well. He was a wise man after all. But he was also someone who saw these lessons repeated in history. After all, his great-great-grandfather was Boaz, a man who demonstrated hard work, trustworthiness, integrity, as well as generosity and kindness, both to his laborers and to a young Moabite woman named Ruth. He modeled the very lessons Solomon later shared. Thank you, Charlie. Well, it's been a full program. Wish we didn't have to pull the plug, but we do. Lord willing, we'll be back next week. I'm John Geiger for our host, Charlie Dyer. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.